This talk was given by Shyla Catherine. For more information and a schedule of her events, visit the Insight Meditation South Bay website at www.imsb.org. For information about online programs, visit the Bodhi Courses website at www.bodhicourses.org. Bodhi is spelled B-O-D-H-I. So I've titled tonight's talk, Taking the Problem Out of Pain. It's important to learn to work with pain. It's important not only for the moments when we are in agony, but also for the times when there's just a little bit of discomfort, because we all experience pain in life. It may be that working with pain is also a preparation for our deaths. Each moment of our life is one moment we could say that's closer to our death. That might sound a little grim, but actually it may not be untrue. This is a traditional reflection to contemplate the inevitability of our death that we don't know when it will happen. And when we are aware of our death, we become more aware of the moment that we have to be alive, the current opportunity, the current experience. Reflections on death are one of the reflections on mindfulness of the body. And as we work with pain, as we work with the body, we're working with mindfulness of the body, mindfulness of feelings, as well as our mental reactions to it. And it's worth taking some time to connect with this experience, this wonder of the body, this rather mysterious and yet vulnerable physical form that is so much of how we sense the world. Mindfulness of the body practices take a large um, part of the development of mindfulness in the Buddhist tradition. There are entire discourses of the Buddha just focused on mindfulness of the body. And mindfulness of the body is the first portion of the mindfulness practices that we find in the Satipatthana teachings. We find a range of different practices all considered to be practices of mindfulness of the body. That includes mindfulness with breathing. It includes body scan, walking meditation, awareness of the postures, awareness of movement and clear comprehension in movement, death reflections, contemplating the various anatomical parts of the body, and even contemplating the skeleton and the decomposing corpse. Sometimes in Western Buddhist practices, we don't think so much about skeleton meditations or contemplating corpses when we think about meditating on the body. But I remember when I was practicing in Thailand, um, I went to a monastery um, where I wanted to practice with the teacher there. I had heard much about his method and I thought it was an interesting technique. And so I went to the monastery and this was in the, in the 90s before the days where you would e email and arrange everything through emails and texts. We, in those days, we just went to the monastery 
<laughs> you just showed up. You found your way there, and you showed up. And then you asked the first monastic that you saw um, if you could, um, who, who, you know, if you could speak to the uh, abbot and ask permission to stay in the monastery. And so I was guided to what we might call as a, a waiting room. There were a couple of kind of lounge chairs in this large room. Um, while I waited for um, the abbot to be available so that I could request permission to stay in the monastery. And as I was sitting there, I was actually, it was Thailand, it was hot, and I had, um, there was a long walk from the the, the, the nearest bus stop, and I had a big backpack, so I was pretty hot and sweaty, so I kind of leaned back in the, in, the, in the lounge chair and was just sort of looking around the room, realizing that it was oddly decorated. There were lots and lots of pictures on the walls, and all of them were of, um, of car accidents and murders and clippings from newspapers and crime scene photos. It was very strange. And when I looked at the sculptures that were in the cases, I realized they were not sculptures at all. They were um, corpses in various stages of decomposition, kind of shriveling up. And then uh, displayed here and there around the room were various skeletons that were just kind of like hanging like we would be more accustomed to seeing a skeleton in a doctor's office or something like that. There were these various skeletons. These were not plastic skeletons. These were often people that had attended the monastery and um, had donated their body after their death for contemplation on impermanence for contemplation of the body. And so I got up from the seat. It seemed odd to be sitting in a lounge chair in a room like this once I realized what I was in. And um, I started looking more closely, and many of the cases had a picture of the person when they were alive and, um, and a verse, you know, or some statement. Um, and I asked somebody later, later when I was in the monastery, to translate a few of them. And often they were statements about the vulnerability of the body and actually asking people to contemplate the impermanence of the body, saying, you too will be like this. And that's the reflection, is to be able to see death and not turn away from it and not just analyze it with a scientific kind of distance, but see it and contemplate I too will be like this. This body too will die, is subject to decay. I think it's not a good idea to wait until our death to contemplate death. But we all have a chance to sense the vulnerability of the body every time we're sick. Because it's remarkable how these bodies work as well as they do. And no matter what aches and pains you have, you got here tonight, which tells me your body's working really well. And it's complex. There's all kinds of mechanisms that rely upon the various things that we eat to get transformed in just the right way to be able to, to work this chemical, electrical, biological system. It, it's extraordinary. And yet we get sick. Often some little tiny thing, little virus or a little bacteria gets the better of us. And we get sick. So when we are sick, 
It's a great time to practice. A time, we could say, to prepare for our death. To contemplate this body. To contemplate this body as vulnerable to illness and death. But sometimes when we are contemplating this body, when it's not doing so well, it can be scary. It can even feel overwhelming. And when we are occupied and overwhelmed by our concern for my physical condition, how I am feeling, we might lapse into feelings of isolation, get irritated, grumpy, angry. We might close off when we're in pain, blame others, just want things to go away, and lose the connection with the experience of this body as it is, with the truth of pain, and lose the connection with the recognition that all beings are subject to illness and death. We all experience pain. The first noble truth of the Buddhist teachings is a teaching on what's called in Pali, dukkha. And we might find dukkha translated as suffering or unsatisfactoriness or pain. One translator uses the term stress. Another uses discontent. Another prefers the unsatisfactoriness of things. Whatever our suffering is, whatever our pain is, it's just one slice of the dukkha that we all share in. We may want to resist this unsatisfactoriness, and if we resist, we lose alignment with this noble truth, with the simple truth, with the fact that in life there is pain. The first noble truth doesn't say life is all suffering. But it does ask us to contemplate the unsatisfactory nature of all conditioned experiences because they change. We can't control them. They're not always the way we want them to be. And what do we do with this first noble truth? The Buddha said, we must fully understand it. We must fully know it. We don't fix it. We don't try and make things into some kind of utopic ideal world where there's no pain. But we fully know the truth of dukkha. Do we accept that? Do we really accept it? Do we accept that every birth leads to death? That everything changes? That lasting happiness can't be found in anything? If that sounds depressing to you, then we have to look more closely. Because the Buddha said that the breakthrough 
The real penetrative knowledge of this truth brings happiness and joy. When we fully understand the truth of dukkha, that all things are unsatisfactory, we live with ease, with freedom, with contentment, with joy and with delight, fully alive for each moment that occurs, not resisting the, the, the painful experiences, not afraid of them, not pushing them away, but open to everything that occurs, fully awake, fully alive. But this is not easy for people to understand. Many people hear this and go running for the door, think, ah, this Buddhist teaching is for somebody else. (laughs) And we might prefer some science or various things. So one of the little studies that I found very interesting on pain was a study that was done a long time ago. Um, Well, in the realm of science, it's a long time ago. It was basically a study on pain tolerance. And um, some subjects were asked to hold their hand in cold water. You know, like freezing cold water, like icy cold water. The kind of cold water that causes pain. It's not going to kill you but it'll hurt, you know. Um, And so they were asked to stick their hand in cold water. Now, one group was asked to pay attention to the sensations, to direct their attention to the sensations of their hand in the cold water, to actually focus on those present experiences. And the other group was was not encouraged to pay attention to it. I don't actually, I didn't note whether they were told to distract themselves or just were given no particular instruction that I can't recall. But the, what I do remember is that, do remember this, that the group that had their hand, were, were instructed to pay attention to the sensations kept their hands in the water a lot longer. And afterwards described it as being less painful than the other group and had a more kind of less disturbed, more positive attitude towards the experience. And we can take an exp- a, a, a study like that and say, hmm, I wonder how that can work with the pain in my knee or the pain in my shoulder or the pain in my foot. Or the pain in my neck. No, that's not. That's we can't blame that on so and so. What if we turned our attention to feel those present sensations? Maybe then our pains wouldn't make us so cranky or so grumpy. Maybe we'd be able to tolerate them more, have more interest in them, find that they are not a burden or an or create an emotional weight on us. One of the main distinctions that meditators learned to make is the difference between the physical sensation and the mental suffering around it. And there's a discourse that's often quoted from the Buddha where um, it's called the parable of the two darts. And he basically says, does it hurt to be stabbed by a dart? Yes. 
It hurts. And then he says, does it hurt more to be stabbed by two darts? Yes. He says the first dart comes with life. You can't do, you know, you get that. The second dart you're inflicting upon yourself. You don't have to do that one. And so through our meditation practice, we practice to leave it at the first dart. That's bearable. That's bearable with joy. That's bearable with ease. It's dart after dart after dart after dart after dart that feels unbearable, that we inflict upon ourselves. That first dart might be tingling and pressure and stabbing and searing and vibration and sharpness and burning. The second dart might be irritation and anger and blame, aversion, hatred, fear, that mental contraction and reactivity around the physical experience. If we can train ourselves to leave it at one dart, then no problem. No problem. We'll be able to be present for both the pleasant and the unpleasant experiences that come. We'll be able to be present through our life process and our death. One of the challenges, of course, when we're in pain is not getting entangled in other mental qualities like hope and fear. Hope of a time when that pain goes away. That's the if only that pain would go away then blah, 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 blah. I'll be able to blah, whatever. Or fear. What if it never goes away? What if it never goes away? What will I do? This is where we really have to ask ourselves, do we want this second dart, the mental dart? Can we let go of the fear? Can we let go of the hope? And instead simply connect with the actual present experiences. What's happening right now? Can we be with that? Can we make the distinction again and again between a sensation in the present moment and the thoughts and fears and hopes and fantasies that proliferate out from it? We have to make a distinction between the physical experience and the mental experience, the thoughts that proliferate. Because very often it's those thoughts that build up beliefs about being the person who is suffering and in pain, being the victim, being helpless, being the one who's overwhelmed and unable to handle it. And then we get even more entangled in this reaction to the pain through our identification with it, through our desire and our aversion and our fear. Whereas if we simply turned to know the pain, the clear physical experience in the present moment, we might actually be able to be mindful and awake for it. So we have to listen to the inner dialogue. What are the interpretations? What are the mental reactions? What are the views and the judgments 
that we're experiencing our sensations through. Sometimes we just have the thought, my knee hurts. And even in very beginning meditation classes, the encouragement is to let go of the thought, my knee hurts. Because the my and even the hurt, the my already has the attachment and the hurt already has the negativity. Can we instead identify what are the sensations pulsing? Throbbing, tingling, pressure, coldness, heat. The mind can become very balanced when it tracks changing sensations and very out of balance when my knee hurts. Because my knee hurting can go into all kinds of thoughts about my story and how it happened to me and what I will or won't be able to become or do. And then we can feel very um, helpless and um, overwhelmed by that reaction and that story. So what are we saying to ourselves? What is the story? What is the perspective that we're investing in? Is it a fear scenario? Is it an anger-blame story? Is it a fear? A fear scenario would be, I can't bear this. This, I just can't stand this. I'll never be able to do X or Y again. What will it be like if I can't do this? I'll become a burden to everyone. I can't pull my weight. I'm worthless because I can't do this because of this pain or this disability. Or there could be um, expectation, a sense that I should be able to, I should be able to do this, attached to an image of how we were before that pain or that injury. I should be able to do this or that. What is this should? Is it a kind of desire, a sense of entitlement, an expectation, an identification with an experience of a, of a self that is not manifesting in the present scenario. It's often difficult to want to face present limitations. Meditation practice does not cure all illness and injury. Some people talk about meditation as being very healing. It is. It's deeply healing. But it doesn't mend bones. It doesn't cure illness. Meditation cures the mind of a distorted relationship to reality. It takes the suffering out of the experience, but it may not take the pain out of the experience. But the suffering is extra. The suffering is, the multi, the, the, is, is adding the darts. It's the movements of mind that create the fear, the despair, the irritation, the depression, the anxiety, the worry, and how nice life would be, even illness and death, if the mind was free from all that. A long time ago, I was in a serious car accident. And I learned something very important. And it was this 
recognition of how essential it is to not link our mental state to our physical condition. We might have chronic physical pain, but the mind can still be happy. Genuinely happy, not fake happy. Genuinely happy. Because happiness doesn't depend upon feelings of pleasure. Joy does not depend upon the absence of pain. We have to find for ourselves a more reliable source of happiness than that those fluctuations between pleasure and pain in the body. The happiness that we experience through meditation and that we learn to experience in all moments of our life is a happiness that does not, not depend upon any state of the body. We work with the mind so that we prevent those proliferations of fear. And when they start, if they start, we poke holes in them. We thin them. We intersperse other experiences with them. We notice the sound of the leaves and the trees. We notice the warmth of the sun on the skin. We notice the color of a flower or of a vehicle going by. We take our attention off the story of I'm in agony and focus on something else in the present moment. So we learn to give the mind these little moments of vacation. Okay, it's not a big holiday, but oh, it can be so refreshing to have a vacation from the story of my pain. Oh, it's just warmth. It's a sound. We can use all the sense stores really opened to the, the nose smell, the smell of anything cooking, toast, anything that you... That you um, flavors the taste, highlight all the various experiences of the senses, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, and highlight them in the present moment so that the mindfulness of the body is much, much, much bigger than just that shooting pain. We have to resolve to not dwell in the conceptual box of suffering, to commit ourselves to just not keep dwelling in the story of pain, because often the story isn't actually that accurate. I think Mark Twain is credited with saying that the worst things in my life never actually happened. And when we look we might find that there is a little pain in the body, there's a little uncomfortableness, but the story around it can be much bigger and really out of touch with, out of proportion with what's actually happening. When the mind is spacious and when our senses are opened, in that moment, we'll hear the birds, we'll hear the crickets, We'll hear the children playing. We'll smell the pasta cooking on the stove. 
and will open to a much vaster experience of life than just this pain and a mind that is overwhelmed by this pain. The pain might not be absent, but we will loosen its grip, the grip that it has over our mind. We might have a painful sensation, but we won't have a bad day. To do this, we take lots and lots of these refreshing breaks, these little mini vacations, simply by being mindful of something else. Just as our attention can turn toward the painful sensation, our attention can also turn to something else and then back again, and then to something else and back again. And we learn to direct our attention to not be afraid of feeling the pain, so we direct our attention to the unpleasant sensation, but not feel caught by it or stuck in it, so we just as easily can move our attention to the smell of a pine tree or to the sight of a dog wagging its tail and then back to the pain. So we move our attention back and forth, back and forth to various experiences. I think it's good to practice with pain before our pain is very dramatic. To learn the skills with little things. To not wait until we have an extreme medical condition and then to try to learn the skills then. But practice first just with an ordinary discomfort, like sitting a little bit too long or on a little hard on a seat that's a little hard. And it feels a little uncomfortable. Not going to kill you, but maybe take that little, that pressure, that hardness as that, let's work with that as pain, as as unpleasant sensation. Or maybe, maybe there's a fly that comes into the room and walks on your skin. Can be excruciating, actually. Those little steps. Well, vow not to wave it away. Just feel the steps. Develop an equanimity and a peacefulness and an interest in that unpleasant sensation. Maybe there's some minor muscular tension, maybe in your jaw or in your face. How do you work with that? Or an itch. I think it's helpful to, in meditation practice, to sometimes take a vow to not move. But I don't suggest that you take long vows of not moving. Try it for just five or six minutes. So that within those five or six minutes, you feel anything without moving to alleviate that discomfort. Because we often just squirm in little ways, adjust in little ways, you know, we do our little things to, um, to make ourselves, to get rid of any slight discomfort. So for five or six minutes in each of your daily meditations, just stay still and work with anything that arises. When I say work with it, I mean notice This is the physical sensation, and this is the mental response. Can I be with the physical sensation and watch it changing with a skillful mental response? Mindfulness, equanimity, patience, interest, curiosity. 
those would all be skillful. And should an unskillful mental response arise, like anger and irritation and blame, well, then the question is, can I be mindful of that? Oh, anger has arisen. What's that like? Ooh, that actually increases the tension. Hmm. So we see how it affects our experience. Chronic pain in particular, or a disability of almost any kind, can threaten our sense of who we are. I remember with that car accident, prior to the car accident, I was traveling all over the world. I thought of myself as being capable of doing whatever it was I wanted to do. If I wanted to go trekking in the Himalayas, I could go trekking in the Himalayas. If I wanted to study some subject, I could study that subject. I didn't think of myself as being unable. I was young, I was healthy, I was strong, I was intelligent. But after that car accident, I was unable to do anything that I rec- that I had I- many of most of the things that I had identified with. I couldn't sit. I couldn't even sit long enough to eat a meal. I ate standing up for a couple of years. And so, if I wanted to go out to a restaurant with a friend or something, I was sometimes embarrassed because I didn't want to be seen as unable to do something as ordinary as sit for 15 or 20 minutes. <laughs> and so I would decide, oh, I need some more salt. I'm going to go up and get it. Oh, I need some more napkins. I'll go. Oh, you want some more water? I'll go get the waiter. So I would have lots of excuses to stand up. And when I saw myself doing this, I had to contemplate the identification with, the attachment with, the idea of who I was as being somebody who could do those things, like sit in a restaurant. And shortly after that car accident, I um, wanted to attend a course on Buddhist studies. And I had never done mediocre in classes before. I had always enjoyed school. But I found that I could not retain anything that I read. In fact, I could, it was incredible struggle to just be able to comprehend a paragraph. Because I think the nervous system was so occupied by the pain that I couldn't comprehend what I was reading. I would literally read a sentence and, and not be able to know what I had read. And this had never happened to me before. So I'd have to read it again, and then again, and then again. And it, was, it would take me so long to read anything. I'd have to, be, and to put together the meaning of a whole paragraph, let alone a whole chapter, or to comprehend any of the texts that I was reading. It took incredible concentration and patience and diligence to be able to just do that. And I found that I was not able to keep up. I, couldn't, I could only do a fraction of what my classmates were able to do. And 
this had never happened to me before. I was used to being, you know, a, a, to excel in school and in study. So here I was, unable to do what everybody else could do. And the weird thing was, was I felt like I couldn't recognize myself. The way that I was manifesting wasn't the person that I thought that I was. So the feeling was, it's not me. Who is that person? It's not me. Because the me is capable and intelligent and able to read a paragraph and able to sit. You know, who is that person? And the experience was a bit isolating. Because not only was I not relating to this manifestation as me, but I felt as though the people that were meeting that person weren't meeting me because it wasn't me to be met. They were just seeing some exhausted, disabled person. That wasn't me. So this sense of isolation and alienation became quite apparent to me. I couldn't take myself to be somebody who couldn't do those things. But... I also couldn't take myself to be the person who no longer could do those things. And I realized how much we identify with our activity, with our productivity. It might be our professions, our careers, might be our interests, our hobbies, it might be our activities, our sports, it might be our travel, our abilities, our jobs. They might in some way or other, define who we are. We might be recognizing ourselves through our function. But how can we know a deeper experience, deeper than social roles and social functions that we may fulfill sometimes and other times be unable to fulfill? Because at some point, through accident, illness, or aging change. We'll all lose some of our cherished abilities. And we may lose them to the point that we can barely recognize ourselves. This accident showed me that who I take myself to be was deeply wrapped up in concepts of being competent, productive, capable. And it questioned, who was I now that I was not capable And who will any of us be when we are not productive anymore? When we're not so capable? Can we practice in such a way that we let go of the old self-image of being capable and not adopt the new self-image of being disabled, incapable, Can we practice mindfulness, awareness, wakefulness in such a way that we respond to each present experience with honesty and clarity, free from the burden of identification and of being someone? This is a practice of letting go, of letting go of anything that we take ourselves to be. Letting it be enough to be present for this moment. Whatever is happening now, 
without the constructions of past and future, identity, selfing, hope, or fear. Pain is a fairly private experience in the sense that most of the time people don't see it and sometimes people will not believe it. It can be exhausting for people who have chronic pain to every day have to ask for help for the simplest things, especially when symptoms seem slow to improve. Sometimes people get tired of helping. Sometimes people resent disability. I can remember during that first year that I was frequently, well, frequently, more times than I would like, um, accused of not pulling my own weight, not doing my share of the tasks that were needed to be done in various communities and groups that I had engaged in. We can learn to communicate our needs and our limitations clearly. We can ask for what we need. But that doesn't necessarily mean that people will respond with compassion. We have to have patience. But we also have to have equanimity with the reactions of others. So then our illness, our injury, our pain become conditions for cultivating not only mindfulness and non-identification with the present experience, but also patience, compassion, and equanimity. Equanimity is really important. We're the only ones that are responsible for our own minds. Nobody else is responsible for our minds. So what is happening in our mind? One way of really opening to our mind is to look around us and to see that we're not the only ones in pain. That actually, wherever we look, we will see beings and people suffering. This perception of the shared nature of pain can help take the sting away from our own experience. It can help give rise to compassion. I've heard many students say that they want to practice compassion, but they want to practice compassion for themselves. Well, this is okay but I really think we have compassion for ourselves by opening our eyes to the suffering of others. And by having compassion for others, we gain compassion for ourselves. Because we see that we all experience dukkha. There's a shared aspect of dukkha that can dissolve the chronic loneliness and alienation that plagues our world. We can take inspiration from seeing other people face their pain. There's always somebody worse off than we are. 
That may not sound very cheerful, but I think it's true. If we look around in the hospitals and the nursing homes, on the streets, in the therapy offices and physical therapy centers, there's no shortage of suffering beings. We can let that observation inspire compassion and to inspire a sense of gratitude for the abilities and the potentials that we each still have. We can let our perception of suffering bring forth a love that puts an end to fear. Right in the midst of pain, we choose to cultivate gratitude. Rather than focus on all the things that I need to manage my pain, we can celebrate the joy that comes in a single moment of being present with whatever condition whatever experience is happening. We can value whatever blessings we might find in the moment. The world has many contrasts. There's kindness and there's cruelty. There's acceptance and there's intolerance. There's love and there's ill will. There's appreciation and there's anger and blame. We have to be willing to Recognize all this in the world and develop equanimity within ourselves in the face of it. So that we stay balanced, whether we're greeted by support or oppression. We stay balanced, whether we're experiencing pleasure or pain. We care for ourselves physically and we care for ourselves mentally. We take care of the body and we take care of the mind. So this week, I'd like to encourage you to be aware of discomfort of pain, of unpleasant sensation. And see if you can notice the difference between the physical experience and the mind's response to it. Every day, many times a day, as you're engaged in activities, just notice the difference. Something is unpleasant, notice, was there a mental reaction? Did we immediately blame somebody for doing that to us? Did we get grumpy and angry? Did the tone of our voice change? Notice the, the mental reaction because that's that second dart that we can each extract. And when we're left with only the physical pain, I think we'll all be able to have the equanimity and the mindfulness to be able to observe it changing. So thank you for your attention tonight. I hope you enjoy the speaker series. Um, thank you. <laughs>